BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. A quick word, the conversation in this podcast with Lord Julian Fellows was recorded before the WGA and SAG-AFTRA went on strike. The opera is where society puts itself on display, not just in New York, but all over Europe. And the leaders take boxes where they meet each other and their children court each other, and that is how the wheels of society turn. Hello, everyone. This is the official Gilded Age podcast, your companion to the HBO original series, The Gilded Age. And we are back for season two of the show. I'm Tom Myers from the Bowery Boys podcast, joined once again by my friend, Alicia Malone. Hello, Alicia. Welcome back. Tom, we're back. Yay! <laughs> we're back. I'm Alicia Malone. I'm a host on Turner Classic Movies and very excited to be taking you to the Gilded Age. New York City in 1883 as the old guard and the newly moneyed battled it out for society's supremacy and industry was booming. We are so excited about season two. We're so happy that you, the listener, have joined us for this season because this podcast is back with a bang. Later on in the show, you will hear our interview with Lord Julian Fellows, the creator, writer, and executive producer of The Gilded Age. You know, America is not like Europe with history. They don't, the Europeans carry their history in their hat. They never take it off. And they, and they sort of refer to their history all the time. But Americans don't really do that. They're looking forward as a people. They want to know what's coming next all the time. All right, let's get this party started with Season 2, Episode 1, You Don't Even Like Opera, written by Julian Fellows and directed by Michael Engler. There is so much to discuss with this episode. But quickly, Alicia, we should remind listeners that if they'd like to catch up on the podcast, Season one is available to binge listen on all of the usual podcasting platforms and on Macs. Absolutely. I recommend giving that a listen to get up to speed with the background history of the Gilded Age season one and to be reminded of all of the drama that happened with these characters. So much drama and so many clever nods to actual Gilded Age history. Season one of the podcast is really a great primer for understanding life in New York City in the early 1880s. We spent quite a bit of time discussing what exactly was fact on the show and what was 
shall we say, just good TV. I mean, there was a lot of facts and a lot of Richard Morris Hunt. (laughs) (laughs) So much Richard Morris Hunt. Yeah. The architect of the Gilded Age. And this season, Tom and I will again be taking you behind the velvet curtains to find out how the show is made. We'll also have plenty of new interviews and we'll go even deeper into the real-life historical parallels behind this fictional series. Okay, Alicia, are you ready? Mm -hmm. Because it's time to catch up with the Van Rynes, the Astors, the Russells, and the Scots as we dive into Season 2, Episode 1, where things kick off in church. For everybody, upstairs and downstairs, they are all heading to their respective churches. Even church is going to church. He is, because we open on (laughs) Easter Sunday. It's a a time of new beginnings, pastel dresses and many hats. And we see the Van Rynes, the Astors and the Russells attend their Easter services at St. Thomas's Church. So let's start there, Tom. What can you tell us about St. Thomas's Church? Was it the, you know, the religious hotspot for society types as it seems to be here? Well, it was certainly very important. St. Thomas Episcopal Church was built in 1870 here at Fifth Avenue and 53rd Street. So right in the beginning of the Gilded Age and right in the middle of that great lineup of mansions that stood on Fifth Avenue in Midtown, including quite a few Vanderbilt mansions. Oh, so did the Vanderbilts go to St. Thomas? Many of them did, yes. And you'll remember that Alva Vanderbilt, social climbing Alva, who has some very strong parallels with Bertha Russell, Alva's daughter Consuelo would be married to the Duke of Marlborough in St. Thomas's Church in 1895. It was one of the most famous weddings in Gilded Age New York. But you know, St. Thomas isn't the oldest church in the city because if it opened in 1870, then it's, it's somewhat of a newcomer. Well, like New York society, it had actually moved up the island as well. The original St. Thomas's Church opened down at Broadway in Houston in the 1820s, and a founding member was Caroline Astor's father-in-law, William Backhouse Astor. The church then moved up the island, and it opened at 53rd and 5th Avenue in 1870. Now, that church was destroyed by fire in 1905 and was replaced about a decade later by the church that still stands there today. But to be clear, St. Thomas wasn't the only important church in town because I read a lot about Trinity Church, which I believe was down Mm -hmm. on Wall Street and Broadway. Right, which, like St. Thomas's, is also an Episcopal church, but much older. It dates back to English New York in the 1690s. Now, stepping back here, for those who are a little fuzzy on their American religious denominations, Mm -hmm. the Episcopal Church is a mainline Protestant church that is part of the Anglican Communion. It's, It's like a cousin to the Anglican Church. So during the Gilded Age, it really carried an extra British cachet, mm. you know, that I think it, it's safe to say made it especially appealing to Gilded Age society. And there were other really important Episcopal parishes in the city as well, including the lovely Grace Church, which moved uptown to Broadway between 10th and 11th Streets in the 1840s. And, you know, speaking of all these different churches, I think it is so clever how this episode opens because, you know, we're reminded of the hierarchy of this particular society. You have St. Thomas's Church in New York with high society. It's very fancy, very white. Then a more humble church attended by the downstairs staff like Watson and 
Borden. <laughs> and then in <laughs> Philadelphia, there's the black church the Scots go to. Yeah, it's very segmented. Mm. Trinity, Grace, St. Thomas. These were obviously the city's wealthiest churches. And by the way, they raised thousands of dollars by renting out their pews. Mm. And there were really like Gilded Age bidding wars among families for the best pews in the church. You'll notice in the show that Mrs. Astor and Carrie stroll elegantly down the center aisle to their pew down front. Yes, and then George and Bertha are standing in their pew. So, you know, it's kind of like assigned seating. Exactly, yeah. They didn't have to ask anybody, is this pew free, you know? (laughs) They weren't free. They paid for them. And Ward McAllister later in the episode tells Bertha when they're up in Newport, you've got a pew just opposite the Astors at St. Thomas. So it's almost like opera boxes, but in church. Yes, yes, pews, boxes. There was lots of Gilded Age seating drama. (laughs) This practice would eventually be discontinued. I found a Times article when it finally stopped at St. Thomas's church in 1961. Wow, that was when everything was changing in the 60s. Also, later we hear that Bridget, who is Irish, has gone to St. Patrick's in New York, which, of course, is Catholic. Right, and Bannister tells her that, you know, the new cathedral is a credit to the city because it, it was new. That church had just opened, that cathedral had just opened in 1879, four years before our story takes place, at Fifth Avenue and 51st Street. So it's just two blocks down Fifth Avenue and across Fifth from St. Thomas's. And it too, St. Patrick's, had moved uptown. Old St. Pat's still stands today down on Mulberry Street. And there's also a real juxtaposition between these church scenes, you know, not just with the people and the churches, but the mood, because Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, understandably, the mood is somber. Peggy, Dorothy, and Arthur attend Easter service with the Spring family, who were the adoptive family of Peggy's son, now deceased from, as we learn, scarlet fever. Yes, scarlet fever is a bacterial illness that killed thousands of people, many children, in outbreaks around the world during the 19th century. These outbreaks would just flare up. For example, more than 2,000 children died in just one outbreak in Massachusetts in 1859. Mm. And outbreaks happened everywhere, in New York, here in Philadelphia, And the young were especially vulnerable. And there was nothing that could have been done. You know, when Arthur says, you can't blame me for scarlet fever, Dorothy reminds him, I can blame you that we weren't here before the fever struck. Yeah, because as with most outbreaks and epidemics at the time, the families who could, who had the means to flee the city, fled. You know, the countryside seemed safer. Mm. So Dorothy here is telling Arthur that if they had just gotten the child out of the city, he could still be alive. But of course, the Scots didn't know that the boy was still alive. Just heartbreaking. But then we go back to New York. And then after the service at St. Thomas's Church, we meet a new character. New character alert. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. It's the Reverend Luke Forte, played by Robert Sean Leonard, which, ugh, Tom, my heart is still broken over his character in Dead Poets Society. Carpe diem, Alicia. Yes. And Reverend Forte making small talk after the Easter sermon to Agnes and Ada and Oscar and Marion reveals that he was prepping for his first wedding this week. And it is a matrimonial mic drop. Let's listen. But you're managing? 
I survived the Easter service today, and my first wedding is this week. Oh, so I feel I'm getting married. May we hear who is to be married? Uh, Miss Bingham and uh, Mr. Rakes. Do you know them by any chance? No. Little, yes. Really. Awkward. Uh. Tom, I had just about wiped that creepy Mr. Rakes out of my mind. (laughs) Uh, But no, no, his name pops up again uh, because, of course, he's getting married at St. Thomas. Mm. It really made me laugh. Everybody's faces are priceless except, of course, Marion's. And I I felt for her, actually. And I found it a little bit rude the way that Agnes just kind of like walked off and she was in a puff. I mean, she couldn't get away fast enough. Well, that's Agnes for you. And before we move away from this scene, Tom, I want to talk a little fashion Mm. because it is all so gorgeous. The men are dressed up and the ladies are wearing beautiful pastel spring-coloured ensembles. And you'll notice that they choose to walk instead of taking their carriages. This is exactly what happened on Easter Sunday to show off their outfits to their best advantage. And I was reading that dressmakers and milliners would be out on the streets sketching the outfits so they could be recreated and then sold in stores. Oh, it was big business, yes. Mm. And how about those elaborate hats? Yes. They're the first things actually, that we see in this entire season, you know, as one hat box after another is popped open. (laughs) But yeah, the the tradition of the Easter parade was in full force here in 1883. It dates back from the years following the Civil War. And sorry to take us back into religious conversation here, but the parade isn't just about spring fashion. What? I know. It's actually a celebration, as we've heard Reverend Forte proclaim from the pulpit here, of life after death. You know, the faithful had just pushed through 40 days of Lent. And this was a period of reflection and of modest living, of modest dressing, Mm -hmm. you know. And, And Easter, then, is a celebration of resurrection. And churches during Lent would reflect this. They'd be somber places. But on Easter, they would be an explosion of flowers and colors. And, and so the ladies' dresses then were just kind of following suit. I'm learning so much church history today, Tom. <laughs> so, I mean, really what you're saying is that the Gilded Age women were finally allowed to wear vibrant colors on Easter. <laughs> yes, and they did. And then they paraded up and down the avenue following the service to see and be seen. And newspapers even started reviewing the spectacle. The New York Times wrote on the Monday following Easter in 1887 about the thousands of New Yorkers parading Fifth Avenue. And the ladies, quote, were as a flock of butterflies that for a time locked within the church had fluttered outward far and wide to try the springtime sunlight on their glittering wings. Ah, lovely. It reminds me of, you know, Judy Garland and Fred Astaire in Easter Parade. (laughs) And by the way, this all still happens today because I've got a friend in New York who goes every year and she always dresses up in her, you know, her vintage dresses and her amazing hats. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's even bigger. I mean, the hats have certainly even gotten more extravagant (laughs) today. By the way, Alicia, I I just have to say, I gasped when I first saw the scene of everybody walking through the streets to church. There are just so many people Mm. in this scene, you know? We learned in season one of the podcast about all of the COVID protocols that had really affected how many people were permitted to be in, in big group shots. Judging from this scene, times times have really changed. 
Yeah, and I was thinking about all the people in the costume department and and the dresses that they had to make (laughs) and the outfits for all the extras. Hundreds, yeah. But alas, all is not sunlight on butterfly wings. Mm. Oscar's story suddenly takes a rather sad turn after he sees his old beau, John Adams, sauntering about after church with another man. Oscar heads off to a dark and smoky bar where a mysterious man buys him a drink. And it does not end well. No, it doesn't. Oscar later arrives at 61st Street. He collapses, beaten and bloodied. Agnes wants to send for the police, but Oscar refuses. And Oscar maintains that his mind is a complete blank. Which Agnes is not completely buying. She wonders if Oscar did something to provoke the attacker. She tells him, I know you. I've watched you be reckless and rude. Mm -hmm. And then John Adams calls on Oscar and has a tender moment. He even kisses Oscar's hand when they are interrupted by Bridget, the maid, bringing tea. It's, again, awkward, although we're given a touch of levity when John reassures Oscar that there wasn't a lot to see. I thought that was quite a nice moment, a little touching moment between Mm -hmm. them. But... You know, Oscar is obviously feeling the pressure of being, as he says, the torchbearer for the House of Van Rijn, and he's continuing to look at Gladys as his ticket to wealth. And Gladys is, is not too excited about him, but Oscar does have an ally in Aurora Fane. She throws a party to help Oscar cozy up to Gladys to welcome another new character. New character alert. <laughs> wee wee wee. It's Dashiell Montgomery, played by David Furr. Now, Tom, I still get confused. Okay, how are they all related? Oh, no. Let's see. Cousin (laughs) Dashiell. I think we can work this out. He, we find out that he is the nephew of Agnes's late husband, right? Mm. I think that that's all the information that Agnes whispers to us in the church pew. So if you're, if you're graphing this out, the late husband's sibling's child, Mm. which sounds to me like Dashiell's the second cousin of Marion, right? Maybe. I don't know, but not a, not a blood relation because Marion's connection to Agnes and Ada is through her father, who was Agnes's and, and Ada's brother. True. And Dashiell's connection is through Agnes's late husband. So I'm going with second cousin. After all, when Dashiell asks Marion, does that make us cousins? Marion responds, almost, but not quite. Well, we we also learn that Dashiell is a single father to a young girl named Frances, and Tom Frances inadvertently gives us one of the most dramatic parts of this episode because she recognizes Marion. Oh, her face lights up. I mean, she beams with joy. It turns out, small world, that Marion is her watercolor teacher at St. Mary's. (gasps) Agnes is clearly embarrassed to hear that her niece is, what do you call that? Teaching. And and once they get back to 61st Street, she really unloads on Marion. I knew you'd be angry. Ada, why didn't you stop her? Me? What could I have done? When did you find out about it? This afternoon, like you. So your contempt for us both was at least consistent. I don't have contempt for anyone. And it doesn't seem to bother Cousin Dashiell that I teach at his daughter's school or Aurora. They feel sorry for you, that's all. You're wrong. Not everyone is as cruel and mean-spirited as you. Oh? Marion. Is it cruel to mind it when you stamp on our name and drag it in the mud? 
Now get out of my way! I suppose you have to drop it now. No! I won't. I've given my word to the headmistress and I'm not going to break it. Then things may be uncomfortable. So what? I won't be put in a cage. Go, Marion. I mean, I love that she won't be put in a cage, but wow. I mean, this really surprised me. Agnes is fiercely against the idea of Marion teaching at St. Mary's. And I know that Agnes is old fashioned, but her ferocity here really surprised me. Oh yeah, this was this was scary Agnes. Yeah. This was shouting Agnes. Yeah. I mean, which Bannister admits to Ada is highly unusual to hear in this home, which is another funny exchange. <laughs> but I do feel like this is one of those rare moments when we see Agnes really boil over. And I think it's about change. Hmm. Uh, she has already had to accept, you know, in the first season, the Russells living across the street. But in her own home, she feels that she can preserve the traditions of her social class, and that does not involve women working. Other women, of course, were working. Half the downstairs staff in both houses are women, but upstairs, working could send the wrong message to visitors and to a potential suitor. Like, was Marion not interested in marriage? Mm. You know, Or even worse, did the Van Rynes need money? I am clutching my pearls. But uh, clearly this was very upsetting to Agnes, so watch out, world. Uh, and they also mentioned that Marion's school is St. Mary's, which Ada says is old and well-respected. So can we assume that St. Mary's was a real school? No, actually. And with deep apologies to any 150-year-old St. Mary's alumni out there, <laughs> I could not find anything about a St. Mary's that was active in the 1880s in New York. But as... Greg King points out in his book, A Season of Splendor, The Court of Mrs. Astor in Gilded Age, New York. Some young women from privileged families did attend day schools, such as Miss Spence's school and the Dwight School and the Comstock School for girls. But more often, uh, these girls were educated by private tutors and governesses. And governesses we have seen. I mean, last season we met Gladys Russell's governess, so that means no day school for Gladys. No. And as King points out, these tutors and governesses often taught the young women to speak French and German fluently. And the girls also took lessons in things like needlework and piano and, yes, painting. Interesting. We've, we've certainly seen a lot of needlework in this show. Yes. But uh, anyway, back we go to Brooklyn, where the Scots have returned to their home. But, you know, even though Dorothy opened up to Peggy about how Arthur saved her life and why she fell in love with him in the first place, she's obviously still having trouble forgiving him. This leads to a touching moment when Arthur does his best to apologize, and you can feel how sorry he is. Take a listen. I lie awake at night thinking about how I should have done things differently. I'm sorry. That's all I can say. Well, you just have to keep saying it until Peggy can find it in her heart to forgive you. Or I do. But don't you see, if, even if you are sorry, and I do believe that you are, it doesn't change anything. So you'll hate me all your life? I don't hate you. But we need a rest from each other. We have been trapped in this trio of regret for too long. 
I guess it's just too hard for, for Peggy and Dorothy to forgive him just yet. It certainly seems that way. I found this scene really heartbreaking yeah. because you can, you really feel the grief all around and that there is just nothing to be done. Peggy, you know, she believes her own father is sorry, but it doesn't change anything for her. She can't forgive him. And that taking a rest from each other, she mentions, that will actually bring Peggy and Marion back together. Yes, and Marion knows firsthand that Peggy is able to forgive. I'm so glad they're back to being friends, and I'm really mm-hmm. hoping that Peggy will move back to 61st Street. Mm-hmm. But anyway, let's go to Newport because Bertha Russell is there. Her Maple House is ready, a play on Marble House, do we think? Well, it's just a couple of letters off, <laughs> yeah, and, and there is a lot of marble going on at Maple House. Uh, Marble House, as we discussed last season, was Alva and William K. Vanderbilt's 50-room Beaux-Arts mansion Mm -hmm. in Newport, and it was completed in 1892. Just a casual summer cottage, and like so many (laughs) other opulent palaces, it was designed by our fave, Richard Morris Hunt. Mm -hmm. So do you know if this Maple House on the show was shot at Marble House in Newport? No, in fact, it wasn't. I reached out to Luke Harlan, a co-producer on The Gilded Age, who revealed that the exteriors and interiors of Maple House are, in fact, another Newport mansion, The Elms, Mm -hmm. which was designed by architect Horace Trumbauer for the mining millionaire Edward Berwind, and that opened in 1901. I was confused when we first saw Bertha and Ward walking up through its lawn because you see the ocean crashing, you know, just next to it, behind them. And in fact, The Elms is on the other side of Bellevue Avenue. It's not on the ocean side. Turns out the ocean was added in post-production by the show's special effects wizards. Wow, they do such an amazing job on this show. You can never, you'd never tell that that wasn't the real ocean. I think we have to, you know, give props to the visual effects department. They work really hard. Yeah. Also, I remember talking about the elms as a location from last season. It wasn't the the kitchen used for the Russell's kitchen. Yes, Church and Watson and everybody else. And in this episode where we see Borden making souffles at 10-minute intervals, (laughs) all of that action is, in reality, located inside the Elms, which is now also playing the part of their Newport cottage. The magic of television. And we're given a tour of Maple House by young Larry Russell, who, as it turns out, has become quite the architect. (laughs) That was quick. Yeah. Yes. We found out last season that his true passion lay in architecture. He even had Stanford White on his side, convincing George, his father, to let him give it a try. And now his skills are already in demand after Bertha leads Ward McAllister on a tour of Larry's improvements to Maple House. Ward mentions a widow, a Mrs. Richard Blaine, who is living in Newport following her husband's death and may need some help from young Larry. So she's there out of season. I mean, this is a this is a shock. <laughs> hmm. Well, it certainly makes her quite a bit different. And did I detect a slightly suspicious look from Bertha here? I mean, why wouldn't she go back to New York in the off season? Hmm. And Ward didn't really do a great job of clearing it up for Bertha. He mutters something about her having more freedom in Newport. But he does clear up that she's quite wealthy now that her much older husband has died. 
Yeah. So she's a wealthy young widow. Mm. So she could remarry, or I guess she could enjoy her freedom. Well, something tells me we'll hear more about Mrs. Blaine. Anyway, that was just a quick jaunt for Bertha in Newport because she's got to get back to business in New York, the business of battling Mrs. Astor. Again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. By now, it is obvious that nothing short of an opera war is developing here. It's, it's old New York at the Academy of Music with its 18 boxes versus the new money set at the Metropolitan Opera House with its three levels of boxes. Bertha, Bertha hears that there are 120 of them. And stopping by to talk this through over tea with Bertha, Mrs. Astor raises the question of loyalty. Shouldn't Bertha be loyal to the Academy? After all, it's served society for 30 years. Yeah, that's not exactly a winning argument for Bertha, who points out that it hasn't won her loyalty. She says, not when they won't let me in. Why didn't they see this coming and build more boxes when there was still time? I love this line, because in reality, in 1880... The same day that the plans for the Metropolitan Opera House were announced in the press, the Academy of Music suddenly announced its own plans to add 26 boxes to their house. But alas, it was too little too late. I'm sure that would not have satisfied Bertha either. And it's funny, Tom, because George later says to Bertha, you don't even like opera. And I guess it's not really about the music, is it? No, and you've got to give it to Bertha. You know, she is at least self-aware enough to know that it's about something else. She explains to George, quote, the opera is where society puts itself on display, not just in New York, but all over Europe. And the leaders take boxes where they meet each other and their children court each other, and that's how society turns. So Bertha needs a box, not just for herself, but for her children, Yeah, and we do know that Bertha is always looking out for those children. (laughs) Indeed she is. And George also reminds Bertha that by choosing to support the new Metropolitan Opera, it may make her the enemy of Mrs. Astor. But, of course, Bertha is not afraid of Mrs. Astor, and we see this again when the Russells host a dinner for, quote, opera lovers that is actually more of a fundraising event for the Met. You know, Mrs. Astor had asked Bertha to see the guest list ahead of time and Mamie Fisher's there, but Mrs. Astor is not happy to see the other guests. I'm delighted to see you. You have guests I wasn't expecting. You never said you'd invited the McNeils. I'm afraid that they have spent a long time on our waiting list. Much longer than you. Several guests here have spent time on your list. Have you combed the city for the disenchanted rich who couldn't get a box at the Academy? (laughs) Mrs. Astor, the Academy board may think they can keep out the new people with impunity, but you're clever enough to know they're wrong. While the Metropolitan would welcome the old guard if they want to come, why not take a box in both houses and see how it plays out? Perhaps you do not value loyalty. I am different. I should scold you, Mrs. Fish, but I know that you're just playing with matches, as you like to do. Ah, may I present Mr. Gilbert? Or do you know him? I know of him. He is in charge of grubbing up the cash for the new house. (laughs) Not flattering, but true. (laughs) So much going on here. And for a second, I actually even felt a little bit sorry for Mrs. Astor. I mean, it seemed like she had walked into a trap, you know? Mm. I mean, but how sorry can you really feel for Mrs. Astor. I mean, she's being beaten at her own game. Again, by Bertha. And as for Mrs. Fish, we've seen that she does, in fact, like playing with matches, as did the real Mamie Fish. 
And by the way, side note, Alicia, nobody can mug for the camera quite like actress Ashley Atkinson, <laughs> who plays Mamie Fish. I mean, her, her mischievous smile in this scene is priceless. She is giving us real Cheshire cat. <laughs> she is. And I also like that Mamie Fish doesn't really have to follow the rules because everyone just knows that she enjoys having fun. Mm-hmm. But Tom, how does all of this compare to, to what really happened? You know, did Alva Vanderbilt support the new opera house? Yeah, she and her husband, Willie K. Vanderbilt, did support the new opera house. And he, along with a group of others who had been shut out of boxes at the Academy, formed the Metropolitan Opera House Company in 1880. Mm. And it would it would take three years for the, the new Met to be completed, which brings us to the year of our show here. And yes, the real new Metropolitan Opera would have many more boxes. And during those three years of construction, the Gilded Age elite were recruited to become stockholders and box holders. So that all checks out. Yes. Although I think we need to leave that drama there for now. I think that there's much more to come in that department. I'm sure there is. And after Bertha's successful dinner, there is a surprise guest star. Christina Nielsen is there, right there on Bertha's stair landing, singing Marguerite's Garden from Faust. Mrs. Astor is not amused, but everyone else is delighted. And Christina Nilsson was a real opera star, a Swedish soprano who did indeed sing the role of Marguerite throughout America and Europe. It was one of her main roles, yeah. She was famous around the world for singing Marguerite and was really celebrated here in New York, too. She first performed at the Academy of Music in 1871. She was famous in real life and even In fiction, Edith Wharton begins The Age of Innocence with the line, On a January evening in the early 70s, Christina Nielsen was singing in Faust at the Academy of Music in New York. Uh, That was a novel we heard a lot about last season because that was a favorite amongst cast members to help them get into the mood for their roles on The Gilded Age. And it is a great Gilded Age primer for anybody. Mm. The movie's great too. I was going to say that. (laughs) Beat you to it. But yes, Christina Nielsen was incredibly famous at the time of our show. It was an era when operatic stars were mainstream celebrities. And Miss Nielsen had come all the way from Sweden for this intimate dinner performance. I mean, this was nothing short of a coup for Bertha. And you can just see the dazzled delight on everybody's faces. Well, Christina's beautiful voice takes us to the end of episode one. It's a lovely way to finish, but it is not the end of our podcast. Oh, no. Oh, no, not at all, Alicia Malone. No siree. Because (laughs) coming up after this quick break, we have creator, writer, and executive producer of The Gilded Age, Lord Julian Fellows. So cool. This is the official Gilded Age podcast. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you think the new Metropolitan Opera will succeed? The members of the Academy are very determined it should not. And if you jump that way, you'll never take Mrs. Astor with you. My advice would be to stick with her. She'll get you into the Academy in the end. I'm not much good at in the end. Besides, nothing stays the same forever, and I can't always be at Mrs. Astor's beck and call. Why not? I am.
Welcome back to the official Gilded Age podcast, your companion to season two of the HBO original series, The Gilded Age. I'm Alicia Malone, joined by Tom Myers. And Tom, why don't you introduce our special guest? That's right, our very special guest. We could not kick off season two of this podcast without speaking to this man, to this lord, I should say. Lord Julian Fellows is truly a Renaissance man. He's an actor, he's a novelist, he's a producer, and a screenwriter known for introducing us to the upstairs and the downstairs as the writer of the film Gosford Park from 2001 and as the creator of the much-beloved series Downton Abbey. And he's done it again with The Gilded Age, taking, taking us up and down the stairs and through the new money and old money mansions in 1880s New York. Julian Fellows, welcome back to the official Gilded Age podcast. It's nice to be back. We're so happy that the Gilded Age is back for season two, as are the many, many fans of this show. So just to start off, I'd love to know what you thought about all the positive reactions to season one. Well, I was very, very pleased, you know, when you are a writer, you have these things that interest you and catch your imagination. I mean, either as in this case, a specific period of American history, but it could be anything, actually, a particular storyline or whatever. And you need a kind of sense that there is an audience out there that is interested in it too. And so when you get that affirmation and people come back for more information and they, I mean, it was like the Met Gala Ball being the Gilded Age last yeah. year. I, mean, mm-hmm. I, I got a lot of fun out of all that. I, I really enjoyed it because, you know, America is not like Europe with history. The Europeans carry their history in their hat. They never take it off. And they sort of refer to their history all the time. But Americans don't really do that. They're looking forward as a people. They want to know what's coming next all the time. And this season, it really feels like we have to pick a side between old New York and new New York. So where do you fall? The old money gives a kind of continuity, a kind of tradition, a certain elegance, a certain way of doing things. But the new money brings in a dynamism and a kind of energy and an extraordinary can-do attitude that invigorates that society and makes it exciting to be part of. And I think they gave that to America, and I think it's something America has retained to this day, that when you get off the aeroplane and drive into New York, the whole thing feels exciting. So I'm on everyone's side, really. And, and didn't we see that with Bertha Russell in the first season visiting Newport as kind of an outsider at first and even sort of getting, you know, the quick escape from Mrs. Astor's cottage. But here in season two, it opens and she's up there. She is she has been transformed, hasn't she, into a different character. She's in a different place. Bertha has the gift of self-confidence. I mean, she's modeled on Alva Vanderbilt in real life, who similarly, although she was probably better born than Bertha, but she'd gone through the Civil War, her family had lost everything, really, and she didn't have much to build on. She looked like a pug dog, which can't have helped. But somehow she didn't accept the barriers. She didn't see the barriers as applying to her. And I think Bertha has the same, well, I hope she does, I made her up, but I think Bertha has the same impulse. She 
She thinks she's got to keep her eyes open, keep her ears open. Uh, this would be better if I did it this way. Uh, this would be better if I wore this and didn't wear that. She's perfectly capable of that. But what she doesn't lose is her confidence. She never believes that Mrs. Astor is a better person than she is because she was born a Schemerhorn or her husband's been richer. Bertha doesn't care about that. She cares about whether she's got the money to make it happen now. That society was driven by those women. I mean, Alva Vanderbilt is an ob obvious one, but Tessa Ulrich and various other of those women, they were the ones who drove that new society and made people think, my God, you know, what? America's woken up. And, and suddenly there were these billionaires descending on London and Paris and Rome and telling them how it was going to be. America operated on the basis that everyone in the world, given their druthers, would rather be American. And that was just how it was. And nothing but optimism from being American. America was a great country. America could do anything. And I have to admit, I'm a little nostalgic for it. The self-questioning America of modern day is less comforting to me. I preferred the time when they thought they were right about everything and they were the greatest country on earth. And I think that was part of what me, got me interested in the Gilded Age, that this was a time when America woke up. But also some of them started to look at themselves and think, we don't have to be in second place to the European courts of the Empress this or the King of that. We're America. And the whole new society started to be generated. And really that society was the dawn. I mean, now when you look at the Gilded Age and you look at Hollywood, they have a great deal in common. How they present themselves, how they want to be seen by the rest of the world, all of this stuff. And it made me very excited. And I read lots of books and then I wrote a TV show. Yeah. Well, I feel the same way growing up in Australia. You know, America loomed large. And now watching The Gilded Age, I kind of want to go to New York during this time, especially as we see in episode one, it's Easter Sunday. So there's all of the hats and the, the colorful dresses, the characters going to church. Can you tell us why you wanted to kick off this new season on Easter Sunday? Well, I, I rather like trying to dramatize America's own traditions and not traditions that were borrowed from other, well, inherited from other countries. And I've always rather loved the concept of the Easter parade. Of course, partly because of Judy Garland and yes. Fred Astaire and all of that, but partly because it is an American thing. It's not English at all to have this parade and people at the opening of a new series you're rather looking for an excuse where all your different characters can participate yeah. and speak and reintroduce themselves and remind the audience who they are and give them a little bit of the plots to come. And it seemed to me that the Easter Parade gave me that in a very, very visually attractive way. Mm. And so it sort of suited my turn. 
Yeah, it's, it's a great way to show the hierarchy of the society, remind everyone where they sit. Uh, but how much time has passed between season one and season two? Oh, very little. I mean, it's sort of six months later or something. I mean, the first season one was in 1882 and we're now in 1883. We're heading toward the opening, let's say, the, the construction of the Metropolitan Opera. And so here in the first episode of season two, we see Bertha back butting heads with Mrs. Astor, who has finally, at the end of season one, begrudgingly accepted her, of course. But we, we're introduced to this whole new opera war, this tension that really did play out in the early 1880s. Tell us a little bit about the opera and the role that it played in the Gilded Age. The Academy of Music, who had been the main opera house of New York up to that time, they thought they could keep out the new people. They thought they could distance them. And opera at that time was a sort of social cultural center. It was where society met. We have a notion of opera where everyone sits there reverently, uh, you know, listening to the singers and, and that's fine and it's all silent. It wasn't like that at all in those days. You went in and out of people's boxes. Everyone was talking all the time. If you were lucky when they got to the main arias, you shut up. But most of the time, they were talking, gossiping, visiting, in and outing. It was where their children met and hopefully would get married, you know, all of this stuff. And so it was a very key element of society. Yeah. And Alicia, don't forget that we also, in this first episode, get to meet Jay Gould, the Gilded Age's most famous or infamous robber baron, some would say scoundrel. Of course, he was quite real, as were the tensions between the titans of industry on one side and their low-paid workers on the other. This is, this is a storyline, of course, that resonates today. But it's interesting to see that worked in here and how it might affect, you know, the viewer's take on George Russell. How are we supposed to feel about George? George is a brilliant businessman and a very ruthless one and has made a great fortune and he's pleased with himself for doing so. But he's not quite heartless. He has uh, what the idea, the, the thing that gave me the idea was Jay Gould, who was so ruthless a businessman that some people wouldn't even have him in the house. But he was a very affectionate father and husband and, you know, lovely with his children. And he would take his daughter around on her pony on a leading rein. Most of the fathers of that period couldn't have recognized the photograph of their own children. And he was a wonderful exception to that. And as I was reading about him, I thought this is a good base for George Russell. I wanted to show that very ruthless other side to the Gilded Age. On one side, it was all couture ball gowns and tiaras. But that wasn't the whole story by any means. Yeah. And I love also the contrast that you have between different female characters in the cast. I'm thinking about Marion and Ada when they're talking about Agnes's reaction to Marion being a teacher. You have Ada who says, well, you'll have to give it up then. And you have Marion saying, no, I'm not going to be put in a cage. It's interesting that the women at this time were very powerful in social circles, but not so much in terms of, of work. 
Yes, of course, that's perfectly true. And by and large, these women didn't work. They didn't work before they were married, and they certainly didn't work after. By the second half of the 19th century, there were women beginning to feel their strength and to put themselves forward. I mean, later, it would turn into the movement to gain women the vote and various other things. But even before that, you see them emerging in the arts, in science, in various other areas. You're quite right that, of course, they'd always, for, for centuries, been very powerful socially. I mean, there isn't a society in the Western world. I don't know enough about the rest of it. But in the Western world, society was always run by women. They, they made the rules, they enforced them. And their husbands, however powerful, however rich, could not overturn their judgments. If the women decided a woman was not worthy of being received in society, she was not received. And nothing their husbands said or did could make a difference to that. And what they did during this period of history is they began to convert their strength in that area into other areas. They recognized they did have authority, they did have strength, they did have intelligence, and it was time to spread the areas where they could be operative and powerful. Well, yeah, I mean, Marion really seems like she is stepping into her own this season. So how has her character grown from season one to two? Marion is a courageous character. I mean, she is a woman living in a fairly circumscribed era. I don't agree with that thing of when people write characters in period drama as if they were completely modern and had all the modern choices ahead of them that the girl would have in 2023. That seems to me dishonest. I think you have to face them with the difficulties and impediments they would have had at the time. But at the time, some of them were stronger than others. Some of them were more far-seeing than others. Like any era, some people are cleverer than others. And I hope that we've caught that balance of making Marion stronger and more curious, but nevertheless, a child of her own day, really. That's what I've been aiming at anyway. Mm. And, and another prominent woman who, f who figures into the sort of final scene here of episode one of season two is the Swedish soprano Christine Nielsen, which is extraordinary. It's, it's only episode one that we've seen here, and already there is so much happening. Uh, we can't wait to watch it all unfold throughout season two. But stepping back just a second here, stepping back a bit, what are you hoping that fans of the Gilded Age will get to experience this season? Well, you know, I'm old-fashioned enough to always hope the audience enjoys the show. But, um, and I think it's a pretty good show visually, and I think we're very lucky in our cast who, who make it sound much better than it was when I left it on the typewriter. Uh, so all of that I'm optimistic about. But I think it is also about a society where there were two big things happening. One of us very much still with us today. After the Civil War, they had to find a place in society for the black community that had been developing, yes, uh, and one of my great surprises when I was researching for the series was the existence of a prosperous 
black bourgeoisie in New York. I don't think I really knew that, or certainly not much. Uh, but in fact, it was a very defined and successful community with their own newspapers, their own businesses, this, that, and the other. But that was part of the development of the black American, that they had to find their role in society. I mean, some people would say now they're still finding their role in society because of the obstruction that they have met with. I do believe that in many businesses, including my own, black, very talented people have had a tough ride, a tough journey, uh, and sometimes a frustrating journey they were never able to really win through on. So uh, I hope that we explore that to the interests of some people, uh, finding out about that chunk of American history. But I think it is also the way American society was developing, the changing roles of women, their domination, the, le the much less dependence on European culture that came at that time. American culture was developing as its own person, if you like, its own thing that wasn't derivative anymore. It was original and interesting. And, uh, and I hope in all our stories of, you know, love and flirtation and making and losing money and all the rest of it, that those themes come through, that this was a time for me when America really became America. And, and I think that's pretty interesting. I hope it is anyway. It definitely is. And Julian Fellows, it's always so interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. No, I'm really delighted. Thank you. Wow, it is so cool to get to speak to the series creator himself, you know, for our first interview on the series this year, Alicia. And great to hear Julian Fellows talking about a number of things, right? That he wasn't mm. afraid to show all sides of the Gilded Age. And I especially love that he's making this more complex portrait of George Russell, drawing from things like, you know, Jay Gould being not only cutthroat businessman, but also a devoted father. Yeah, I thought you would like that reference to <laughs> Jay Gould. <laughs> and no surprise, I was really intrigued when he was talking about the character of Marion and how he mm -hmm. said how there is a tendency in period drama to sort of retroactively make characters more progressive than they actually would have been. So mm -hmm. Marion is a modern character, but she's still just modern for the, that time. Yeah, and, and modern in ways that we haven't even seen yet in season two. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've got so much ahead of us. It was definitely a cool start to this new season of the pod. Join us again for another episode of the official Gilded Age podcast, because next week, Tom, we'll have more behind the scenes info and more interviews with the crew. Yes, don't forget to watch new episodes of the HBO original series, The Gilded Age, Sundays on Max. And then tune into our next podcast, also available on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, everyone. Bye. This has been the official Gilded Age podcast, written, hosted, and produced by Alicia Malone and me, Tom Myers. Our supervising producer is Andrew Pemberton Fowler. 
Our editor is Trey Booty, with special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Savon Slater from HBO, and Hannah Pedersen and Amy Machado from Pod People. Listen to the official Gilded Age podcast after each episode airs on Max or wherever you find podcasts. Want even more extra content and behind the scenes moments from the Gilded Age? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Gilded Age HBO to join the conversation today. The official Gilded Age podcast is a production of HBO in partnership with Pod People. Pod People. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.